afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to this uh, industry talk of uh, today. Today we have uh, 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 John Sloss from the United States, who is very much uh, ahead of the American market. He's, he's working there for many years in many capacities, and um, he will talk you through the American markets, the tricks, the do's, the don'ts. And this session will be moderated by our wonderful Cecilia Lidin, <laughs> been a long time moderator for us at the festival. Um, I wish you uh, an inspiring and, and enlightening talk, and uh, <coughs> see you later. Thank you. Um, yeah, we just said that with a title like this, I mean, people should be coming here in hordes, how to be successful in the American market. Uh, you just take notes, and after a few hours, you'll see it, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, it's true, I have been moderating many sessions, but I have to say I'm, I'm slightly daunted sitting here today. No matter, if you, if you Google John Sloss's name, you will come up with titles where you're thinking, oh my God, he's been involved in everything. <laughs> Every successful title I can think of, fiction and non-fiction, your name is connected to, somehow. That is too kind. No, I'm not. Boyhood, Little Miss Sunshine, Fog of War, Super Size Me, Exit with the Gift Shop, Amy Winehouse, just to mention a few. Um, Napoleon Dynamite. What? Napoleon Dynamite. Right, exactly. I don't know if that, if that resonates over here. May, yeah, maybe. And talking about resonate, we're thinking about how to uh, uh, construct a discussion like this so it makes sense for the audience here, not knowing you know, what kind of experience people have in the audience and, and getting the most out of you for the next one and a half hour. And we decided to let John start by talking a bit about his business model, you might say. Is that okay? I mean, yeah, how, how you sure. construct your business. Then we'll try to tie some experiences to specific cases, titles, and in the end um, get some more maybe practical, concrete advice on entering the American market. And at any point, if any of you have a question or a comment, please just raise your hands and it's totally fine to interrupt us. Yes, uh, I'll probably be talking at you a fair amount of the time, but I'm here to impart whatever wisdom I may have. So if there's something that comes up that you would like to ask about, feel free. Um, so, Synetic Media, tell us. Yes, so I am a lawyer by training. Um, and I've always been in love with films. I, uh, I'm old enough to have been part of the film societies that existed before, I guess, the internet and DVDs came, where you, if you wanted to see films from history, you would go to auditoria at universities or in cities and, and watch, you know, uh, sort of fill in your cinema history. I spent a lot of time doing that, um, even while I was in law school. Uh, when I graduated law school, I decided to move to New York. I, I went to law school in the Midwest of the United States, and uh, I decided to move to New York rather than Los Angeles, which turned out to be a fateful decision uh, in a positive way. But um, because Los Angeles is very much a company town, or at least it was at the time, uh, controlled by, I think, then seven companies who were the sort of major motion picture studios. Uh, and New York was a very different animal. It was uh, arguably the financial capital of the world. It was a cultural capital of the world, but it was very much a bit of an afterthought when it came to film. 
Uh, and I think that that bred a very interesting film industry, a sort of entrepreneurial industry outside of the studios where people who wanted to make films, uh, and, and it was, it, it's always been, I mean, we can talk about this, but it, it, until very recently, it was very much a purely entrepreneurial system, that the, the subsidy system, which I long envied in Europe, um, didn't really exist in the, in the United States. Now it very much does. Uh, just as there may be a you know sort of more entrepreneurial system rising here in Europe as well. Um, so uh, in the United States, if you wanted to get films made, you you didn't get permission from anyone. You just sort of went out and <coughs> tried to raise the money. And uh, in the in the um, studios, there was a, a process for that. But outside of the studios in New York, there really wasn't. There was the, the sort of history of going to doctors and dentists and family friends and things like that. Um, and that was really just taking hold um, when I moved to New York. Uh, you know, it was the era of the beginning of Jim Jarmusch and uh, Spike Lee uh, and, and that elk, um, which then gave way to, through the 80s and the, when I was getting started, to, to Steven Soderbergh and, and people like that. So I, I started out as a corporate lawyer, and after a few years, I moved to becoming an entertainment lawyer. And uh, what I did was um, I would go and find filmmakers and, tr ask and try to be their lawyer. <laughs> uh, and that was going along okay. And, I, and one day, I actually was playing basketball, and I met uh, this filmmaker who... Um, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how current he is here. It's funny because someone I know from that era is sitting here uh, who worked with me with him, but a filmmaker named John Sales. How many of you know who John Sales is? No. I See, don't. it's interesting because every year in New York when, my, when we have a series of interns, I ask them that question, and for the last five years, no one had heard of John Sales, which is kind of shocking because he was very much on a par with someone like Jim Jarmusch back then. Um, so we started rep I started representing John Sales, uh, and uh, what I saw in doing that was that there was an imperfect system, that there was a system that, uh, and maybe this can sort of resonate with a, with a lot of you, that rewarded um, the producers who were good at finding money uh, and penalized the producers that were good at creative aspects and at logistically producing movies. Uh, and that seemed like an inherent inefficiency to me because the, uh, finding money isn't the greatest qualification for making great movies. Um, so what I did uh, is I sort of, uh, this was my aha moment. I, uh, I said, uh, okay, all the other lawyers I see are very passive. They're waiting for someone to go do a deal and bring it to them to document. Um, but I have relationships with all these people um, who finance movies and who distribute movies. Um, so why don't I go to my clients, uh, who I think are valuable and talented, and say, um, I'd like to be more proactive and take an active hand in seeking financing for, for films. And the first people I did that to were John Sales and, and his producer, Maggie Renzi. They were doing a film called City of Hope. Um, and I said, let me take the lead in um, 
putting the financing together, and they said, okay, why not? Uh, and so I did that, and, and that sort of started me on a path because uh, there were other filmmakers I was working with who basically had the same need. Um, and then when those films were finished, the question was, what did you do with these films? Some were pre-sold to distributors, some needed to be sold. So, and I had started going to the film festivals. I'd been to Cannes, I'd been to Berlin, uh, I was going to Sundance. I said, you know, I might as well, I come from a family of salesmen, I said, I might as well go to Sundance and, and help and sell the film, because I can certainly do the deal once the film is sold, because that's the kind of lawyer I was. So I became more proactive in that realm. Um, and what happened is uh, I, started, it, it, I started a business that really started to take off that wasn't strictly the practice of law. It was very much the representation business. It was very much a service business. It just wasn't strictly the practice of law. And in the United States, the practice of law is, is fairly heavily regulated. I'm sure it is here as well. Um, and there are ethical requirements so a lot of the stuff I was doing wasn't the proper practice of a law firm. So I started another company for all the stuff that I was doing to help films get made and out into the world that weren't strictly the practice of law. Um, and we named that Synetic. Uh, and so that has, the, the law firm still exists. We still, we have the largest entertainment law firm in New York. And, um, I'm still a partner in that law firm, and I have a, a, another partner who is like the, the greatest entertainment lawyer in the world. Um, and I spend a lot of time in Synetic, which is a service company. The best way to describe it is it's a service company um, constituted with a, a lot of expertise and a lot of relationships to help films get made and out into the world in whatever way we can. We don't really draw any bright lines. Um, you know, we, we, are, uh, we are a business, so we have to find a way to make money. Um, and um, we don't know everything. So there are areas that we aren't as expert in as others, like foreign sales is, is one area we don't do. But we have a, a number of, of silos, of buckets of expertise, um, and we will, we will customize them, to put them in service of whoever's sitting in front of us and whatever they need. So we have a sales company for domestic sales, and that's probably what we're most known for. That's what you were referring to, Cecilia. And um, we have a group that helps assemble financing. We have a management company. We have a consulting company. We have a um, quantitative analysis company that does modeling that has collected data on about 700 films um, and has made a database that can help be more predictive for producers, so that kind of levels the playing field with, with the distributors who all have that data. Um, and we have more recently a marketing company, um, uh, which seems sort of counterintuitive because that's typically on the buyer side. and We've always sort of been on the seller side. Um, and that started when a guy named uh, Ryan Werner, who some of you may know, was at IFC Films in New York. Brilliant young guy who I think just sort of burned out releasing 40 films a year, uh, as one might. <laughs> and he left, and I said, you know, the future is about, uh, is about filmmakers uh, staying involved with their film, not handing it off to a distributor, but staying involved in their film, and 
because they have a greater stake in that film than any distributor can. They birthed it, it's their baby. Distributors often have 10 films lined up behind it. Uh, and so what Ryan does, uh, he consults to distributors as well because he's a, he's a publicity and marketing expert, but uh, filmmakers often retain him to sort of make sure that films, once they're sort of given to a distributor, are optimized out into the world. Um, and we have a distribution company. Uh, and actually, and another company. We have a distribution company, which we'll talk about later, was formed around the distribution of a film called Exit Through the Gift Shop, which I fell deeply and irrevocably in love with. Um, and we have a company that we started in 2007 called Film Buff, which you may or may not have heard of. Uh, it's, it's an aggregator. It, it, it was, at the time we founded it, uh, we, we were watching about 1,250 films a year that were submitted to us for domestic sales and we would typically work on about 50 of them. So once the sort of internet really came online and held the promise of making every film ever made available to anyone, anytime, um, it occurred to me that maybe there was a, a business in the long tail for a lot of these films that hadn't gotten out there through mainstream distribution. So we started this company, Film Buff, that is really an aggregator and meant to be the middleman between every piece of content ever created and every digital portal around the world where it can be consumed. And so um, I guess uh, what I often refer to what we do is that we are, we're a wildly undercapitalized media conglomerate for the 21st century. <laughs> and um, that, that's sort of what Semitic is. And like I said, we, we we have all these sort of free-floating services that we can array in front of whoever we're talking to to optimize what we can do to help them get out into the world and get made. So is it fair to say that, I mean, each and every of these different companies, as I hear they are, kind of fill into what the, the different roles that need to be taken in the process of whatever, getting the film made and getting the film out. Yes. And you talk about, you know, we, we understand even in our European context, production, sales, distribution, and law. But there's also the thing about management that you mentioned to me. So you yes. also manage people. I think, for at least from a European point of view, that's kind of a new role. It's not anything we do very much. Well, yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm obviously curious uh, in return here because I, I mean, I've been coming to Europe for many, many years, but um, I'm not an expert in sort of the, the nature of representation here. Um, in the United States, it historically has broken down to a lawyer who uh, does, you know, I think what typically people understand lawyers to do, which is, you know, I mean, there are lawyers who sue people, there are lawyers who clear rights, there's lawyers. Often, I, I was trained as a lawyer who clears rights and who collects bundles of rights in order to make movies. You know, rights to people's performance, rights, location rights, music rights, uh, and then licenses those rights, which are distribution arrangements. Um, the, the distinction between uh, agents and managers um, is an ever-evolving distinction. The way it's supposed to work in the United States uh, is that the agents are the only ones empowered to secure employment. Um, and that the managers, but, they, but they're not allowed to produce, and um, the managers are people who uh, paradoxically are both micro and macro uh, 
intimately connected to their clients, meaning that they supervise, often supervise their day-to-day -day activity, and, you know, book travel and oversee publicity and things like that. And on a macro sense, they sort of concern themselves with the arc of people's careers. So agents are more attuned to what is available in the marketplace at that moment and what opportunities are there, and managers are constituted to take a longer view. Um, you can sort of throw all that into a hat and shake it upside down now because the world is uh, changing, uh, certainly in the US, at an extraordinary pace. And I sort of, we call what we do management just so that people understand it, but I don't, to be perfectly honest, as a lawyer, historically, I've always been the person who was most important in my client's life, even more than their agents or if they had a manager. <laughs> And so really as a lawyer, I was de facto acting as a manager. And I'm a busybody and I have lots of points of view. So as you can see from what I've said, I've never confined, confined my point of view to just talking about some deal that's brought to me. So um, I think in, in this world where agents are now becoming managers in the US in their activities and, and, and managers are very much becoming agents in terms of soliciting employment, I think those distinctions are sort of blurring significantly. And if you throw in a someone who was a lawyer like me, who's now started a management company, it confuses things even further. Um, so the way I tend to look at it is we're, re we're, we're a service company, we're representatives. Um, you can call us what you will, uh, and we can stay as uninvolved as a traditional lawyer, or we can stay as immersively involved as a manager, agent, and lawyer combined. And I don't, I don't really care. I, I, I want to be compensated fairly for the work I'm doing. But other than that, I don't draw any bright lines between uh, how deeply involved I am with someone, whether they have an, ag an agent or a manager, or whether we're the only person in their life. Mm -hmm. There was a question already? Well, uh, <clears throat> I mean, a I, when, when I'm, I, I, uh, so you asked about a producer's rep, and I mean, a producer's rep is, is, is a term that isn't used so much anymore, uh, but still exists, which is really what I'm most known for, which is selling films in the North American market. It's really a sales agent who focuses on one territory, or two territories, US and Canada. So the foreign sales agents you know over here are sort of producers reps in the same way that I would producers rep in North America. I think a lot of it comes comes down to words, and in a European context, we're speaking a language that's not ours, which is English most of the time. And I think that when you talk about management, maybe some of our well, who colleagues are, who are the they, representatives here, but I mean, they are producers. That's what we call producers. A producer, you would see at the forum today, pitching with the filmmaker, would also manage the director, meaning take care of him or her book the travels, make sure they're able to make the film they're supposed to make. So the producers... So uh, talk against me if anyone in the audience thinks something different, but yeah. I mean, it's, so producers tend to align themselves with, with filmmakers and go from project to project. Yes, exactly. That's the way I see it, yeah. Okay, I can see that. Um. Do you agree with me, audience? Yeah. Right, yeah. So we, we simply have fewer people Earning less on every project, but I mean, we don't have all the different rules divided up in the same way, it seems. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's so funny because I manage a lot of documentary filmmakers and they have agents. And, and 
truth be told, we're going to end up producing a number of their films. Uh, so I don't know that it's really so different. Um, uh, and like I said, it's different if someone wants it to be different. It's uh, and, and there may be producers here who have, you know, uh, directors who do some of the work of the producer. And I mean, I, I don't know how, how infinitely varied it is here, or whether it's always a sort of same relationship. Um, but it's. Uh, you know, and this is this is a documentary form, and we and as you know, we do both documentaries and narrative features, and um, you know the ways in which narrative features are financed are um, so multifarious, and I, there are fewer there are fewer producers in the U.S. who do who do that well, I would say, um, and maybe there are more sources because a lot of this is a subsidy culture. When you're dealing in a world of you know thousands of potential equity investors for films, having a company whose focus is to know all of those sources and to have relationships with all of them uh, might make more sense than it would here. Um, although, like I said, the world is changing. It's probably changing over here as well. And, you know, it's, to me, this is the most dynamic period. I've been doing this for 30 years. This is the most dynamic period I've known, you know, both in terms of how content's being made, the length of content, the delivery of content, where it's being consumed. You know, it, it, uh, as I've said before, it sort of took a chess game and turned it into a three-dimensional chess game. Um, and I find more and more that a group of people that goes deep in the sort of understanding of all those different components can really find a place in this world for people who want to sort of optimize their storytelling. So in this changing landscape, do you see more possibilities, or has it gotten more complicated, or what's your conclusion? And both. That, both, both. Yeah. Uh, it is infinitely more complicated. Um, there's never, oddly enough, there has never been more money, at least, you know, I'm speaking from a United States perspective, but that's our topic. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, there's never been more money for production of movies in the 30 years I've been doing this than there is right now. And, and that is because the disparity uh, in wealth it's never been greater. You know, there are many more very rich people and many more very poor people, and that's kind of a drag, but uh, it certainly works to the benefit of storytellers, um, and it has. So there's, there's a lot of money available. That it, the, the sort of different uh, media and how they're evolving complicates things significantly when we talk about you know, SVOD, and we talk about, um, you know, the different levels of theatrical and, and transactional VOD and um, all these different models that are forming and how they're working together or not working together. It, it, it mutates, um, it mutates on a monthly basis. The way, how people are choosing to consume content mutates on a monthly basis. It is a full-time job just to try and stay current. And is that what your research department was doing, or I mean? Yeah, the research department was born out of something very simple, um, uh, and, and it didn't. It doesn't uh, sort of empirically occur to people. I found is that every movie, and this this is this is true of docs, but it's. I mean, I would say it's equally relevant of docs, but you know, if if you're gonna if you're gonna do. Um, you know, um, uh, go through all the media and docs rather than just do straight for broadcast. Broadcast, I think, is a very different model if you're not going to be transactional about it or theatrical. 
Um, but uh, what I realized a long time ago is that the studios um, have all the data and all the performance of all the movies, and they share it with each other. So when they're negotiating a back end with you, um, and I've always, I've, I've, I'm a big, if, if, if you did Google me and you saw sort of the stuff that I'm focusing on, uh, one of the things is transparency, is trying to turn you know, the, the film industry from a sort of a voodoo economics uh, uh, you know, repository to a very sort of clear uh, waterfall revenue streams that people can rationalize and make sense. Uh, and I could go on and on about why, that is, why that's important. Uh, but the short answer is, more, if people don't take all their money out up front, but in fact invest in the projects they're doing and thereby lower the actual upfront cost of the project, then it enables more interesting projects to be done. It doesn't, projects don't have to appear, uh, appeal to the lower common denominator in order to get made. Um, and I started a company in the 90s, I don't know if any of you heard of it, called Indigent. Um, where we made uh, close to 20 films with established filmmakers for about $100,000 each, and we gave all of the film, all of the filmmaking team, 40% of first dollar gross. Um, you know, before the investors recouped, or alongside of the investors, and did that so that we could sort of break this uh, sort of general stereotype that 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 uh, that uh, studios are dishonest in their accounting and never share their back end, and there is no back end in movies. Uh, you know, we have about 200 films in our office that are currently paying back end. Uh, and that's an important point to note. So, so anyway, I, I, this is a sort of a roundabout way of saying, um, when you make a movie that has distribution that isn't just for broadcast, uh, invariably, there are people who either invest in it or are net profits participants because they acted or directed it, and those people receive accounting statements from distributors. And what I think people didn't realize and what the agencies weren't sort of helping them realize is that if you have an accounting statement from the performance of a film, uh, with very little additional information, you can construct a to-the-penny P&L for that film. Uh, and there's all sorts of information in that statement that is not restricted, that is made available without an NDA. Um, uh, that if you collect and collate and analyze, you can basically understand, um, uh, demystify the economics of film and where the revenues are coming from and what the costs of releasing films are. And so we started collecting uh, from the films we were involved with. We started collecting from uh, sympathetic producers who, were, who had back ends and who were getting distribution statements, and we made this gigantic database called the Producers Revenue Project, which we make available to basically anyone who is willing to sort of share their back ends with us. Um, and the, the idea was to level the playing field between the data that all the studios had and what could be made available to all the producers. Um, and that would make a, you know, it would bring some logic to what you're negotiating. You could understand how films like yours performed, uh, what people typically spend in releasing them, where the revenue streams are, and you know if you leave if you leave some money on the table up front, what the likelihood is uh, that you could get it back on the back end if the film is successful, enable you to really invest in your film in a way that that wasn't just like throwing darts at a dartboard. Um, 
And that's been very important to us. We've spent a lot of time uh, cultivating that. So it's not just research for your own company, it's basically people can, can access that information for their own. Correct. Okay. Interesting. Any questions? Uh, when we were talking the other day, um, you said that you could talk for hours about exit from the gift shop, and I thought that maybe we should start linking some of the talk here to a concrete Yeah, e exit through the gift through, shop. Sorry, through the gift shop, sorry. Um, yes, exit through the gift shop is a, it's a, how many of you have seen it? <laughs> That's a pretty good number. Um, it's one of my favorite movies, um, and uh, it, this is just, uh, I guess, I just sort of a story I like telling because, um, uh, and, and I, I think it's instructive to a certain extent. Uh, I was, uh, there, was a, there was a fall, I don't know, I forget how many years ago this happened, but I was, I was with one of my uh, favorite people I work with, Richard Linklater, who directed Boyhood last 12 years, <laughs> um, <laughs> that came out last year. Uh, we were driving around uh, northern France uh, after his film, his film Me and Orson Welles had screened at the Deauville Film Festival. And I got a phone call from someone uh, uh, who said, we've done our research and we've decided that you're the person we want to work with. I'm like, okay, what are you talking about? And they said, uh, have you heard of the graffiti artist Banksy? Which uh, was, to my own surprise, I had because uh, for reasons that will be, uh, become apparent soon. I don't know how well-known he is over here or was at the time. Uh, probably Fair. pretty well-known, yeah. Um, less well-known in the States. Okay. Um, and uh, so uh, I said, oh, that's interesting. And they said, we want to come over and show this film to you. Uh, and um, I said, sure. So they flew over to the United States. Uh, they booked a screening room. I brought my staff. I came to see this movie and it just completely turned me inside out. I had no idea what I had just seen. I had no idea whether it was a documentary. I didn't know whether Mr. Brainwash was Banksy. I didn't know, you know, I, I knew nothing. And um, uh, I, thought, I, I thought it was all a complete hoax, actually. And coincidentally, I was standing on the corner afterwards, um, you know, railing about this film because it just, really excited me in, in sort of all the different ways it can to one of my people I work with. And I looked over in the meatpacking district in New York and I saw Wild posted on a wall the Mr. Brainwash album cover from the Madonna album that is listed in the end credits of the film. And I go, oh my God, this guy does exist. Unless these people were so good at showing me this film, they went and Wild posted a wall just to, to F with my head even more. Um, so, uh, what happened is that, so I said, I'm in, you know, I don't know what this is, I don't even care, it doesn't matter whether it's a doc or not, it's just amazing, and it's about the nature of commodification of art, it's about all sorts of things. It was, a, I thought it was a really deep and really entertaining movie. Um, and so, they said, yes, we'd like you to represent it as a producer's rep, uh, and we'd like you to take it to Sundance and sell it. Uh, and so I'm like, okay, that sounds like a good plan. Maybe we can do a stunt at Sundance. So um, I called John Cooper, who's the head of the Sundance Film Festival, and said, uh, I have a film to show you directed by Banksy. And there was like a silence on the other end. And I said, he, he goes, uh, okay. <laughs> I said, do you know who Banksy is? 
And he's like, uh, not really. <laughs> um, I said, do me a favor, hang up the phone, go to your staff in the middle of the room and, and ask, tell them you have a film directed by Banksy, and then call me back. And five minutes later, he calls me back and says, okay, when and where are we screening it? <laughs> so, uh, uh, and so he saw it, had the same reaction on him. He said, let's do it as a TBA. Let's not announce it as part of Sundance. We'll just have a secret, we'll have a screening that's, we don't, we don't, we announced what it was like a day before Sundance. Um, at the same time, I called my old friend Dieter Koslick uh, at Berlin, and I had the same conversation with him. I said, I have a film directed by Banksy, and he's like, oh yeah? <laughs> and I, I said, do you know who Banksy is? Uh, uh, I think so, you know, it's like, so I said, I said hang up the phone uh, and go and do the same thing, and he called me back five minutes later with the exact same response. Um, and uh, they both, he screened it, and flipped for it, and I said, you know, we want official selection out of competition in Berlin, and we're gonna screen it in Sundance, and they both agreed. Um, and what happened, so we were hired to sell it. Uh, Banksy, who I, who I still have never met, um, uh, I think. Uh, <laughs> could be here, so. Uh, you might be Banksy. Uh, um, and, um, I was told by uh, the producers that Banksy was going to come to Park City uh, and that he was going to tag Park City and he was going to leave before the festival started. And I said, well, this is interesting. Um, and that's exactly what he did. He painted, I don't know, um, how many of you have, you been, have been to Sundance? Have you ever seen the painting on the side of the coffee shop on Main Street of a guy with a camera shooting a flower. I don't know if you have it. It's, uh, it's Banksy. It's Banksy. That's one of the things he did. And uh, the owner of the coffee shop was immediately offered a million dollars for the wall while we were in Sundance. And they put it behind plexiglass. It's still there. But he tagged like two other things and left town. And he completely hijacked the first half of the festival, even though he wasn't there. Uh, all the publicity was about him. It was remarkable. And I said, okay, here's a guy, uh, I said, I think I've now met my match for self-promotion. Um, here's a guy who knows how to sell his, what he does um, in a sort of elegant and offbeat way. Uh, but so we, so we screened the film, we got everybody there, and shockingly enough, it did not go down brilliantly. It's like, you know, I don't know what it was, the mountain air or whatever. Um, and, uh, and the offers we got on the film were really anemic. Um, and I was sort of shocked by it and really kind of outraged. So I went to Banksy and I went to the producer, I went to the producers and go to Banksy. Uh, and uh, I said, this is ridiculous. I, this film is a miracle. I think we should distribute it ourselves. Uh, and they were like, uh, okay. Um, and so I immediately thought like, well, how are we gonna finance <laughs> the distribution of this movie? So it turned out there were a lot of Banksy collectors who were in Park City to see the movie. And I went to one of them, a, a billionaire named Ron Burkle, um, and asked him if he was interested in subsidizing the release of the movie. And he said, yeah, I'll do that. 
Uh, I subsequently found out, uh, which is the case with many billionaires, exactly how he became a billionaire. Um, because he just negotiated us into the ground. Um, but, uh, but, uh, he, but he was good for the money. And so we formed a company. We hired a booker. We hired um, uh, a marketing person. We, um, we had Banksy, who, as I said, is a marketing genius in himself. Uh, and uh, and we, we decided to create a company, which we call Producers Distribution Agency, PDA, sort of play on the public display of, of affection. Um, and um, and we, booked the, we booked the film. And we ended up grossing close to $4 million, which, you know, there's only one documentary this year that's grossed more than that, and that's Amy, um, in, the, in North America. And we got nominated for an Academy Award, and Banksy decided he was gonna try to have a homeless person go up and a, a, accept the Academy Award if he won. That didn't go down too well with the Academy, so we had all, <laughs> sort of, all sorts of fights about that. Um, and it turned out to be a brilliant experience. And we, it's funny, the, the film, I don't know how the film worked over here, but it was a flaming disaster in the United Kingdom. It grossed almost nothing. It grossed, I think it grossed 100,000 pounds in the United Kingdom, and it grossed close to $4 million in the United States. And he is British. I still can't explain that. Um, but I think part of it is attributable to how excited we were about the movie and how much sort of energy we put into the distribution. And is that a normal way that people approach you? I mean, I mean, not. I guess I get that this is a pretty extraordinary situation. But you get called up and you see a film, and then it's your gut that makes you choose the film. How do you choose? Yeah. What kind of films you you choose to represent? I mean, I think it's a combination. It's a combination of passion. Uh, I, I happen to love documentaries. It's no coincidence that I'm here, although this is the first time I'm here, and I find this whole proceeding fascinating. Um, but I love documentaries, and I really do not understand. I consider them, on the whole, as or more entertaining than features, than narrative fiction features. And I don't know why uh, people seem to have a hard time going to movie theaters to watch them. Uh, at least in equal proportions to what they do for fiction. Um, but so half of the films we work on are documentaries, and it really comes from that passion. Um, but like I said, we're businessmen and, or business people, and uh, we need to, I need to make payroll every two weeks. So um, we divide between stuff that we sort of you know, we, we work on some things we don't love that we know are commercial. We work on things that we love that we know are commercial. We work on things we, we love that we know aren't commercial. What we don't do is work on things we don't love that aren't commercial. <laughs> At least we try to avoid that quadrant. Um, uh, and, um, and it's, yeah, I mean, it, we've got a lot of people from all sorts of demographics at the company. and. I think we're pretty democratic about it. If someone feels passionate about it, um, and whether it's me or them, and they feel there's a market for it, and they feel that we can add value to it, then we're in. And, and talking about market, when you, when you go into a film, I mean, is it always with the ambition of having a theatrical release of it? And, or can you see other possibilities if you think this is not going to gross a lot of... Well, I mean, that's the $64,000 question, as we say in the United States now. Um, uh, the 64,000 euro question. Um, 
And uh, because you have people like Netflix, who are an SVOD service, who are coming and paying more than anyone for some documentaries that are putting more money behind uh, awards campaigns. Uh, you know, HBO's been doing that for a long time. HBO, uh, HBO was, uh, I would say, was the one sort of non-theatrical destination that uh, really A-level documentary filmmakers historically were okay with not having a theatrical from. I, all of them will do a qualifying theatrical because getting awards consideration is by far the most important consideration for, for SVOD and television buyers. And in the, I, I don't know, every country's different, but in the United States, subscription VOD and cable television are basically indistinguishable at this point. Um, you know, Netflix is coming from the sort of broadband side, HBO is coming from the cable side, but they sort of, they seem to have met in the middle and become almost the same company. Um, then there are people like Amazon that have different models to, that um, haven't really gotten into documentaries yet, but I believe they will in 2016. And when that happens, it's going to be like the Wild West in the United States. There's going to be, there's a tremendous amount of um, subscription money um, for films, and it's going to challenge films that, that really want theatrical. The, the interesting thing about Amazon is that they are more accommodating of a full theatrical uh, than either Netflix or HBO, as is A&E, as is Showtime. Um, and we'll see, uh, you know, there are more SVOD services coming online, uh, and I think the future is going to be about targeted SVOD services. I know there will be documentary-centric SVOD services that grow and become very aggressive in the United States. Um, so I think, um, you know, it's a time that's changing month to month. Uh, I, you know, I, I go back and forth about the theatrical experience. I tend to think that it's overvalued uh, in terms of what it costs to get a film into the theatrical marketplace and what kind of revenue you can also leave on the table when you do it. But by the same token, I am a, an adamant champion of documentaries being considered the same as features, and one of the ways to do that is to get them in theaters. Um, and with Amy this year, we've grossed uh, over $8 million in North America. And um, that is, uh, that's a significant performance, and that's a real money-making thing. Uh, and so documentaries can work theatrically. You know, um, we're, we have something to do with the new Michael Moore film that's coming up. It's going to be very interesting to see how that performs uh, and whether that can sort of continue his strength in the theater. It was very important to him. I think he got significant offers. I'm not selling the film, but I think he got significant offers from HBO and Netflix and people like that, and it was really important to him on this film um, uh, to have a big theatrical release. And I think it's because he might feel the same way. So I, I consider these good problems to have, to, to have, be torn with whether you do a theatrical in light of some very you know, um, rich alternative deals. Um, and I think it's, going to, it's, a, it's a sort of iterative period. Things are, things are mutating, and the next year at this time, the, the norm might be different. <laughs>
but it's very, it, it is, it is, I don't know what it's like over here. I've always been told that it's harder to get theatrical release of a documentary in Europe because the general level of television documentaries is so uniformly high that to get someone out of the house to go to a documentary is even harder here. Um, I do think, I, oh yeah, go ahead. Um, so my name is Yasmin Rams, and I'm um, a producer based in Germany and Los Angeles. And um, I have, especially coming to the festival this year, I've experienced that really many differences between the two markets, the European market and the um, American market. One of them being that so many of the documentaries, or quite a few of the documentaries they're screening here, they're already released theatrically um, in the United States. And uh, so that's just one thing. But I would love for you to talk about two things. Um, one of them is style of a documentary. I feel that there is a big difference in what can play in the US and what is usually produced here in, in Europe. And the second one would be, um, you've been going that direction already, but um, what the usual life of a documentary is here in the um, here, in, here in Europe, we usually co-produce with television that also you know gives documentaries a certain style and so on, and um, you know and we also we also do go to the cinemas. But what would that be in the states? What's the life of a documentary, and what's the style that really kind of can have an impact? I mean. Because I'm not an expert in European documentaries and, and how documentaries play out here, it's hard for me to answer that. I guess I could just make a couple observations. Um, having sat through the forum this morning, um, there are a lot of documentaries that are true life stories in the United States that I think would be savaged here, and maybe it's because of the nature of the commissioning editors in the forum. But, uh, you know, there are documentaries that are purely entertaining, and I, I have a feeling if someone stood up there and said, I want to do a documentary about circus clowns or something like that, people would go like, get out of here. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, uh, I say circus clowns because the guy who ended up, I don't know, I don't know, have you ever seen Capturing the Freedmans? Yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, the guy who made Capturing the Freedmans set out to make a short about, circus, about, about clowns that perform at birthday parties. <laughs> and it mutated into capturing the Freemans. So it's quite a just goes to show you how, how things go. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I, I think there, I don't know if that's true. I don't know what the place for documentaries that are profile documentaries, that are not political, that are not social interest documentaries are, is in, in Europe. I mean, you know, obviously Exit to the Gift Shop was an example of one at least in, in England that didn't play at all. Um, you know the two the two profile docs that uh, that I've Amy and Senna two films I was very deeply involved in I think did pretty well in Europe. Amy's done very well. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. but Amy isn't the kind of film that would be presented here, would it? I don't see why not. Really? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Of course. I mean, so it could be in the forum, and there would. Uh, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, then maybe it was just the tenor of the documentaries this morning because this is my <laughs> first time here. Um, but yeah, I mean, I so I don't know. Uh, again, I guess I would hark back to my point about um, you know this seems to be a more television, a, a more historically television-centric doc market. And I think when Michael Moore came on the scene in the U.S., he sort of kicked off a trend toward theatrical consumption of documentaries. I was involved 
with a film called Supersize Me, which I think actually did pretty well over here as well. Um, that was very much a theatrical film. Um, so, but yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I would sort of turn that back on the audience. I don't. I don't. I, th it's true that a lot of the films playing here have been released theatrically, but I don't know if that's just a timing issue. Uh, I don't know what kinds of films. Do, do, do a lot of documentaries get released theatrically in Europe? They do, but not with good numbers. <coughs> right? People please disagree with me. I mean, what is an example of a, of a successful theatrical documentary in Europe? Uh, I mean, the, the, the interesting, I think it's a very interesting question about the style and, and the kind of films, because the, the, the films that have done well in cinemas are the, the titles you're mentioning as well. Right. So I think that Michael Moore changed the way he went to the cinemas and saw documentaries back in the 20 years ago, or maybe more. Um, Amy has done well. Super Size Me did very well. It seems to be issue-based documentaries that can draw people to the cinemas. Um, not as much maybe the artistically challenging films in the same way. But does anyone have a good example from their country? I mean, I, in, in the Nordic countries, I can say the films that have done very well have been the locally known uh, rock star, whatever films, you know, um, like the Beatles of Denmark got and Marie, 300,000 in the cinema? 250,000 in, in a population of 5 million. Wow, who are the Beatles of Denmark? Called Gasoline. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but just to say <laughs> that's something that can draw a big audience in a country. And I think we're talking about, you know, as you say, Amy is, is an example of that, a tragic story at the same time, but also musician people know. I mean, Senna is a perfect example uh, of a film that worked tremendously in the United Kingdom and may have worked well in Europe, but we released it, actually. The same company that did Exit the Gift Shop, we, uh, we released Senna, and we had a very hard time in the States um, because no one knows what Formula One racing is. You know, they, they all love cars, but it was... Uh, so, it was an, so that, yes, there's a cultural thing where, where there are films that are culturally specific to an area, and... and Hopefully, they work in that area. But I, 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 think, I think there is no sort of, I think you need to be pragmatic about it. And one of the interesting things about the future um, is that more and more uh, definable audiences are going to be accessible directly. And that's kind of what the future is about, that if you, if you understand who the audience for a film is, or if it goes to an affinity group, uh, how to access that affinity group and either get every last one of them uh, for um, for you know uh, consumption or use them as the core audience, which can then expand out on a crossover basis. You know, we just had a film. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm actually a big proponent. I'm sure this will make me unpopular with this crowd, but I'm actually a big proponent of brand financed uh, documentaries. I, I think. In a future where it, it's going to be harder and harder for brands to get their messages out through traditional television commercials, um, uh, they, uh, there's a perfectly, uh, I guess, justifiable place for them in the, uh, um, in the um, documentary landscape. And if they do stuff that's a long-form commercial for them, then no one's going to watch it. So it, the marketplace is going to basically tell them that they've got to do something that, that's informative or entertaining. Um, and there's a way to do that. There, there, there's not a mutually exclusive issue between a brand message and something that is informative and entertaining. I, re I remember about 10 years ago, I was contacted by 
this kind of brilliant ad guy in the United States, a guy named Alex Bogusky, who had worked at a company called Crispin Pork. Um, and he was hired by Burger King uh, to do, I don't know if they have it over here, but did, did you guys have the king here, this guy with the big plastic head, who was kind of creepy? It was in these Burger King commercials. Anyway, it was big, it was very bizarre ad campaign in the U.S. And Burger King wanted to pay to get a script written and to finance a feature film starring the King, <laughs> which would be a long form, in a way, it'd be a long form commercial for Burger King. But it would stand or fall on its own as, uh, uh, you know, as entertainment. And to me, that's much more interesting. Sort of overt brand association is much more interesting than product placement, which is all meant to be subliminal and to trick the viewer um, into you know, affiliating something with a brand. So we got involved recently with a film uh, financed by the Ford Motor Company about the introduction of the new Mustang uh, called A Faster Horse. And we, it showed at the Tribeca Film Festival, which has become a very good destination for documentaries in the United States. In the last couple of years, they've been fairly close to Sundance in terms of quality. Um, and uh, it, was it was directed by the guy who did Jiro Dreams of Sushi, a real filmmaker. Uh, and uh, what happened is that Ford has all of these groups that are Mustang enthusiasts. So in a very methodical way, we accessed all the Mustang enthusiasts and then that's one circle. A further outer circle are just car enthusiasts, and at the same time, documentary enthusiasts. And if you can build those databases, if you can do targeted marketing that gets to these people, um, then I think you see that, I'm sure I'm not telling you something you don't already know, that that is sort of a promise of the future. Um, and that has, um, that's something we're really focused on. That's the huge difference between Europe and America, because here, again, please disagree with me, it's based on public money, which means the whole brand thought is not possible if you want to have public broadcasting money in it. They so, would never do it. So, so it's a catch. But if, the, but, if the, but if there was another source of money to compete with public money, wouldn't that be interesting? Absolutely. We're all, we're all for new money for the films, but it, 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 but it seems But it wouldn't be able to be on a public broadcaster? No, no. Very, well, it might, it might be changing, but that's been a challenge for years now. I mean, uh, believe me, PBS in the U.S. was not lining up to buy the Mustang. No. <laughs> <laughs> but an interesting thought that maybe the level or the quality of the, of the TV here in, in Europe means that it's more difficult to get people to the cinemas. I never thought of it that way, but it's clear that the, the, the titles that you also represent have been the titles that have been successful in the cinemas here as well. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's harder and harder. There are, you know, Citizen Four, which was a flat out phenomenon in the United States, grossed two point something million dollars. You know, it's, it's really, and it, it, and it bothers me. It bothers me that people are so reluctant to go to the movie theater to see documentaries. And I'm sure, I mean, I'm, speak, I'm preaching to the converted, as we say. Absolutely. I'm sure everyone in this room would probably agree with what I'm saying. But, uh, but most of the people in Hollywood probably agree with what I'm saying. You know, they all love documentaries. They all buy them to turn them into narrative. You know, that story that was just before lunch about the uh, Israeli father or the, or the, um, whose son was killed. I mean, it's like, I'm, you know, Nick Fraser said it. It's like, I'm watching that going, oh my god, is Liam Neeson going to play this guy? You know? <laughs> Any questions or comments?
Yes, please. This is a little bit of a departure, but <clears throat> excuse me. I'm an American director, but I make, I have typically made films that are foreign language films, and that has been a, a huge struggle. And I find in America, immediately narrows the audience that I can market to. I don't know if you can comment on kind of your perspective on foreign language films, um, fiction and nonfiction. You know, again, I'm such a sort of naive person in some ways, but I'm always righteously indignant when my staff tells me, yes, it's a great doc, but it, it's got subtitles. So we'll have a hard time selling it. Um, uh, sometimes it deters it. Sometimes they talk me out of it. But no, I mean, it doesn't. Uh, I grew up watching subtitles. Uh, it's harder to watch them on TV, I guess. Uh, you know, but, but foreign language films in the United States, doc or not, have, have been on the, on the decline for years. Um, and I don't know what that is. I, is that an aging population who were just raised with them? And a newer population that I, I don't know the answer to that. What do, what's your feeling? Uh, that uh, that uh, on it being on the decline. Yeah, I mean about the reception of foreign language films being on decline. Do you know? Yeah, do you know why there seems they seem to? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I grew up watching them, so I'm sort of a I'm not I'm not the norm, I guess. Um, why are you making foreign language films? <laughs> the things that, I mean, <laughs> the topics that I choose inter that interest me are, are not, you know. And they're better told in uh, a different language. Well, you know, the one that I currently have is all in Korean, and it's, you know, basically narrated by a North Korean. Um, and when I had a distributor that was interested in it, said, well, do you think we could redo the voiceover? And to me, that was, it's just so inauthentic to do that as a filmmaker, I would never want to do that, but I understand that it would potentially broaden right. the appeal of the film. So I don't know, I'm figuring it out. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's like a muscle that is atrophied, unfortunately, in the United States. Um, I, I know that HBO is, is better than most about it. Uh, I don't know where Netflix comes down on it. I, I was telling Cecilia before that when we deliver to Netflix now, when we do a worldwide deal, we've got to deliver 13 different languages. And it's, they're trying to subsidize, but they basically put it on you, and it becomes really time consuming, consuming and fairly, fairly costly. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have a related question. I'm also an American filmmaker, <laughs> making films in other languages, in Brazil, Japan, and then trying to do something with them in the U.S. Um, my question, do you think it might work better then for that kind of film, uh, an American pr production, but uh, in other languages, uh, to try to be successful elsewhere, for example, to premiere at IDFA or other uh, or Berlin, other festivals, and then try to become successful in the U.S. and elsewhere based on that? I mean, okay, in a perfect world, the answer would be a resounding yes. But I, I'm just sort of scanning my own personal database to think about films that have worked that way, that have built this uh, you know, sort of momentum outside of North America and then come and, I mean, I guess, I mean, there have been, like, gatekeepers, you know, there, um, uh, you know, I, I, um, 
act of killing, did that premiere in the U.S.? Do we? Toronto. Do you know Emily? Yeah. Tell you right, Toronto. Tell you right, Toronto, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I wish I could say that that is a, a smart way to do this, but uh, I, it's hard to see examples of that. I think, uh, again, it's just about sort of trying to educate the American market and with the proliferation of dock buyers with all these different <coughs> destinations, um, there's going to be more demand for a broader range of films, I, you know, I'd like to think. And I do think, I don't know what it's gonna be, but I think eventually there's going to be a really well-funded SFOD or several of them that focus almost entirely on documentaries. Um, so, yeah, how, um, how I, yeah, I don't know how successful it is, but um, I, I mean, documentaries over-index on Netflix, they, they obviously, I think they over-index on HBO, it's hard to know with HBO. Uh, and, and another thing, you know, that, that drives me crazy is that all these destinations are so secretive with their, with their data, you know, it's sort of part of this thing about um, uh, um, uh, transparency. Uh, I don't know why Netflix, as a seemingly enlightened company, run by seemingly enlightened people, has to be so secretive about what is being consumed uh, on their network or uh, site. So um, that would really, but the impression is that documentaries are over-indexed. <coughs> I think um, that will lead to some real initiatives. There was another question up there. Hi. Could you um, talk us through a little bit about hybrid distribution and if it's possible in the States? With the States being so big, it's much more difficult to do what we can do in the UK, where you can work with a booker and things like that and do your own distribution or semi-distribution. Could you talk us through how that I mean, can work in the States? I don't know how easy it is in the UK, but it's becoming increasingly easier in the States. I mean, one of the reasons I, we started our own company and did this with Exit Through the Gift Shop is because I was so sick of begging distributors to take my films and, uh, and then having them you know, do a bad job with them. I mean, that's not every distributor and that's not every film, but um, I just, distributors sort of promulgate this notion that there's some mysterious art that they have, and there's, or there's some quasi-monopolistic uh, ability to access theaters that I think is just not so. And, that, and there are enough networks in the United States, there's, you know, there's the, um, the uh, what's it called, the thing that happens just before Sundance with all, all the theater. Art House Convergence. Art House Convergence. Art House Convergence is a brilliant idea. It's this consortia, consortium of all these independent theater owners that have sort of come out of the woodwork because they've had to with this new model of day and date VOD release because the large chains, even Landmark, uh, are reluctant you know, or won't take films on a day and date release. So the, the independent theaters that will have now really had an opportunity. And there are bookers in the US who are flourishing. There's a guy I work with named Richard Abramowitz who um, um, has a booming business basically working alongside filmmakers who want to uh, own the rights to their films, 
and understand that no one's going to put their film out into the world as well as they can themselves, and that the tools exist for them to get out. So I think the short answer to your question is, these networks exist in the U.S. no matter how big the U.S. appears to be that enable you to do it. Going back to the traditional theatrical distributors in the US, um, certainly in England, there, there's a bit of a move recently for distributors to come on earlier. And they're not just waiting to acquire things at festivals, but they're, they're, they are doing pre-buys in docs. Um, how is that in the US? Are, are, are some of the traditional players getting involved? Well, there's a real movement in the US to pre-buy narratives. Um, that's happened in the last couple of years. You, you go, if you see these big sales that occur, in Cannes or AFM or whatever, it's often off of reels on films that aren't fully cut yet. Um, I'm trying to think of the bigger documentaries. Um, I think that's probably true. Uh, it wasn't true of Amy. We screened it completed. Um, Cartel Land, which is another film I'm involved with that's doing very well this year, that wasn't true. Um, I think it will become increasingly true because of the, docu because of the competitive landscape. And I think people, um, Netflix is becoming more involved earlier at an earlier stage. HBO has always been involved early. And Sheila Nevins is sort of a, a genius at that. Um, so I, I, think, um, I think that'll be a growing movement. And um, it's only, I see it as only a good thing. There's another question? Yeah, oh, up there, then you um, we were, there was another talk earlier today about dangerous docs and sort of with the rise of the documentary um, market in, in the States, uh, there's been a, a bit of a pinch on investigative docs that, you know, disrupt power structures and things like that. Um, are you, you know, do you know if there's a, still an interest in those sort of investigative hard-hitting documentaries or is that, what space is there for those kind of documentaries? Um, I, yeah, I see no indication that, that there's less interest in that. I mean, I think, you know, when you look at the films that are submitted to Sundance every year, and the films that play there and play at Tribeca, that, that's a healthy portion of them. Um, you know, there's a lot of sort of, I've seen a bunch of, you know, death penalty investigative or anti-death penalty docs about wrongful prosecution and, um, a lot, you know, that's, Get citizen, or you've got, um, you've got, um, yeah. I don't. I, what was the theme of the, of the uh, talk? Was it that those were receding or, or less popular? No, it was it was um, talking about litigation related to, or sort of how to prevent uh, the sort of risks that come with being a, a, making a documentary like that, and how um, litigation in the U.S. could be um, discouraging for a filmmaker. You know, it's interesting. Um, this wasn't really a doc, but it's sort of a, it's a great story to tell. Uh, we saw a film about three years ago at Sundance called um, Escape from Tomorrow. It wasn't, I'm sorry, it was a film called Escape from Tomorrow. It's a scripted film that was shot entirely surreptitiously in Disneyland. Um, and it's a real indictment of Disneyland. Um, and there was this sense at the festival, it played, it played in the midnight section, there was a sense at the festival that no convention distributor would touch it. Um, 
that Disney was going to sue them back to the Stone Age. Um, and, uh, and I'm a trained lawyer. You know, I'm, a, I'm a First Amendment lawyer. I'm a copyright lawyer to a certain extent. I'm more of a copyright lawyer than a First Amendment lawyer. But um, I, I saw that movie and I said, you know, there's this concept in the United States, and they have the equivalent everywhere else of fair use, where, you know, if you're making, uh, if, you're, if you're doing something that's social commentary, that's free speech, then there's a balance between the needs of that and the, and the rights of copyright, um, and, or trademark, or whatever else would have been in play in Disneyland. Um, and so I had a friend of mine at, um, uh, who was at Sundance, who's a, who's a law professor at Columbia, uh, and is a First Amendment, uh, he's, a copy, he's actually an IP expert. I said, will you come see this movie at midnight at Sundance and tell me what you think, because I have a sneaking suspicion it's completely protected. And he walked out and he said, he walked out and he said, that film is 100% protected, uh, there's no way Disney will sue you, and if they do sue you, they will lose. Um, and so uh, we decided to release it. We released it through our own company, just to prove that point. And, and we, uh, we even, we got a little cheeky about it, we put it something in our website a running clock at the top that says, number of hours since release, we have not been sued by Disney. Um, and, and, we, and we never got sued. And, uh, uh, and so I, I do think there's a chill in the States, and I think that's, uh, and maybe elsewhere, but that's more from ignorance than anything. There are people who just assume that something's gonna trigger a lawsuit. And the, and the problem is, and I've been, I've, been victim to this, in, uh, or have been a party, not a party, I've been tangentially affected by this in my career. You know, people can sue for any reason, uh, whether they're right or wrong. And if they have the money, they can make your life miserable, um, even if they have no case, at least for a little while. So there is that chill on the, on the system, but I find even beyond that, there are people who just assume certain things uh, about, about, about investigative things, about things that could trigger liability that keeps them from supporting it. And uh, I would just encourage, as long as something is fully vetted, and if you're making that film, you have a responsibility to completely vet what you're doing to make sure that you've got the facts straight and that you are not doing something that's defamatory. Uh, um, and if you've done that and you've worked with the people who are experts in that, then uh, you know, there may or may not be a greater chill than there's ever been, but I think uh, I think it's still incumbent upon all of us to do it. There was a question here as well. Yes, please. Yes. So, hi. Hi. Um, so I'm a European producer, and um, I'd like to ask something which maybe other producers are interested in and why we are here, and come back a little bit to, to what my colleague said before. Um, so maybe the style is one of the reasons that the um, US and European exchange is more kind of a one-way road. So it's, it's going more from US to, to Europe, where US documents, documentaries may eventually work on the European market, but European documentaries normally because of other storytelling, other narratives are not working on the on the U.S. market. And um, but uh, my question would be, if as a producer we think that because of the topic or 
or the, the, the protagonists, a film could work in the, in the US, what be, would be your advice to, to approach um, the, uh, first a producer, first a, a TV stations? In the US? Or in the US, yeah. I mean, I had the case with WGBH, Nova interested in, in one of the projects, yeah. I mean, we, uh, we do, I mean, we did the Pussy Riot film, we did Russian Woodpecker last year. We've done a fair number of foreign language documentaries. Um, and we've had a fair amount of success with them. I mean, maybe self-interestedly, I would say, you should show us your film. <laughs> and uh, if we think that we can add value to it, then, then we will. But I think, you know, uh, you know, there are two, there's sort of two, I think there's two companies that sort of act as conduits uh, between the U.S. market, documentaries and the U.S. market, apart from the actual buyers themselves. And one is us. One is a company called Submarine, run by Josh Braun. Uh, and I think he does a very good job. And I think between the two of us, we have a big chunk of the market. And, um, but we, wa we watch everything that is submitted to us. And if we earnestly think that we can add value to it and there's a place for it in the market, then we'll work on it. Just to specify, but you're always, if, if you aim something more modest, let's say not a theatrical re release, but um, just some additional money from a, a, a public broadcaster, would that also something? Yeah, we do, we do those deals every week. Um, and if it helps a film get finished and made and it helps it get seen, then we've done our job and we're perfectly good with that. Okay, thank you. Sure. Any other questions? Did I see a hand somewhere? Well, maybe in continuation of that question, because that would be my final question as well, what would be some, uh, if not final advice, but more what would you need for people to, to approach you or anyone? I mean, are there any, uh, do you find when you, people approach you they don't have the right material, the right trailer, the right whatever? Um, I'm very bad at watching trailers, and I'm very good at watching movies. <laughs> I was saying the other day, I was bemoaning the fact that even if I know I'm not going to work on a movie, and even if I don't like it, I can't turn it off. Uh, and I, know, I don't know whether, I don't know what it is. It, 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 hopefully it's just a sign of respect for the amount of work that goes into making a movie. Um, so, and as opposed to scripts, you know, we don't read every script that's submitted to us, and we try to discourage that, but every movie, that is completed on some form that is sent to us. We at least two people watch it, um, and so I, you know, it's it's such a fine line to walk because it sort of gets into the question of when when in the process we should see a film. There are a lot of filmmakers who I think wait too long to show us a film because they think we excuse me don't know how to look at a rough cut or will reject it because it's not just there but they'll send it to Sundance before they send it to us and with not realizing that we talk to Sundance all the time and we can become a very good advocate for films during the selective process. So I would say if, if you have a sense of what your film is, if it's in a shape where you can really see what it's going to be, then that's good enough. That's far enough along to show it to us because I think whether it's sourcing finishing funds for you, Doing a domestic, doing a domestic sale that will then trigger interest from the rest of the world, or just helping it get into a film festival, um, we can be really instrumental and really helpful 
over in the United States. And um, sometimes it's just too late by the time we get involved. And it's, it's obviously frustrating. And, and if and when you find the film, you think we're gonna, we're gonna go into this project or film, what do you invest in it? Do you then create your own material that's appropriate for the American market or, I mean? Um, well, it's interesting because now that we have a marketing group, we, can, we have more access to that. Historically, we have not created our own trailers. We will sometimes create posters, although I think, I think creating your own posters is a two-edged sword because I know sometimes distributors think, oh great, I'm dealing with a filmmaker who now thinks they can market their film better than I can. Um, and it sometimes doesn't get the film right. I mean, you know, as much as I may rail against distributors on certain uh, ways, uh, a lot of them are very good at marketing and do have some very good marketing ideas. I think um, oftentimes the best tool we have by far is the film itself. And if we can contextualize it for people, you know, press notes are really important. Any sort of press response outside the U.S. and, and that can help contextualize the film for people seeing it. Because the thing that distributors don't have that the audiences do have, uh, the, the public audiences in movie theaters, is that they've read reviews. So they have, and, and what you try to do is create in the mind of a distributor what an audience is going to know going in to see that film, or what's going to make them want to go see it. So, to the extent you can supplement with the, with with you know press responses elsewhere, with with uh, catalog descriptions from film festivals that 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 contextualize the film correctly, um, I, I tend to think, and I guess I'm I'm sort of defaulting back to my my issue with distributors is that most distributors are fairly lazy want to be told how to market a film. Um, and that's become an increasing problem. When I was, you know, 20 years ago, distributors were more willing to get in a room and, and tell you their ideas for how they will sell a film to the public. Uh, now they'll get in the room and say, you know, how do you expect us to be able to find an audience for this film? And so that's unfortunate, but it does sort of make it incumbent upon the filmmaker who spent a lot more time thinking about the the film than, than the distributor has at that point to really think not just in, in isolation about the film itself, but about how to translate the film to its audience. Any final questions, comments, anything? Because otherwise I think that's a brilliant piece of last advice. I mean, don't be afraid to send the material to you even at an early stage. Yeah. It, it doesn't have to be a final film. Marketing devices. Not at all. I mean, it has to be far enough along to know what your vision of the film is. Mm -hmm. But if it is, and, and that's pretty, if that's a rational, objective response or, or perception on your part, mm -hmm. then yes, that's the right time for us to see it. And besides the whole theatrical release and the distribu distribution, you're also in contact with festivals. You can be an advocate for the. We, it's a big part of what we do. Mm -hmm. Not only advocating films to festivals, knowing where to place them in festivals, trying to clear out the competition so that the people who are going to see the film will be drawn to the film and the festival, knowing who the influencers are who are going to talk about a film at a festival and build the narrative of that film within the festival. You know, there's all sorts of stuff like that that, that is really important to what we do. Okay. Okay.
Okay, I mean, we're going towards the end, and I could ask all these questions about all these other titles, but I think we're going to open up a new, whole new discussion, so we can take that later, maybe. Yes, I'd love absolutely. to hear about Fog of War, and I mean, there are so many titles. But thank you so much for coming here. Thank you.